When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode of For Real is sponsored by TBR, Book Riot's new subscription service offering tailored book recommendations for readers of all stripes. Have you been dreaming of a stitch fix for books? Well, now it is here. Tell TBR about your reading preferences and what you're looking for, and then sit back while your bibliologist handpicks recommendations just for you. TBR offers plans to receive hardcover books in the mail or simply recommendations by email, so there's an option for every single budget. You can visit mytbr.co slash treatyourshelf to sign up today. That's mytbr.co slash treatyourshelf. Welcome to For Real, a bi-weekly nonfiction books podcast that puts the spotlight on books that tell it like it is, or try to. We'll cover new releases, backlist finds, and more. For Real is a book riot podcast and is hosted by me, Alice Burton, and fellow rioter Kim Eucharist. We're recording on Wednesday, September 12th. Hello, Kim. Hello, Alice. It feels like it has been ages since we chatted. I know I was gone, and now I've returned. It's just this crazy, topsy-turvy life. The world, it is. It is craziness. What have you been doing? What exciting news do you have to share with us? Uh, Is there anything exciting? Well, the Bob Woodward book came out, I believe, Uh, Oh, wow, yes. Uh, Do you (laughs) – I okay, I haven't – I've only read, like, news articles about it. Do you have any, like, more information on the contents or anything? Not particularly, no. I mean, I know that it is. So it's funny. I I work at a library and I was going to just find out what was going on with the book today. So we have three copies in our system. There are already 145 people on the hold list for them. Uh, So I imagine that we will have uh, more copies coming soon. Um, But no, I really just read the the news stories about it. And um, it sounds like it's a pretty extensive expose that, of course, the Trump administration officials quoted in it are denying that it happened, but it's Bob Woodward. So um, that guy's, you know, good at being a journalist. So I feel like uh, he probably knows what's happening and what is going on. But yeah. I mean, I keep meaning to like, you know, pick it up in a bookstore. But by keep meaning, I mean it came out yesterday. But like I've been seeing mm-hmm. ads for it everywhere. So I'm just like, oh, gosh, that seems like an actually you said in a previous episode, if there's going to be one book about this current administration that you're going to read, it would probably be Bob Woodward's. Right. Did, am I misquoting you? Um, yeah. But yeah, I think that Bob Woodward is like the one journalist that I really feel like, yes, I would go into the fire of the Trump White House with you and hear what you have to say. Because um, I, I do know that he reported the book primarily on, I think it's deep background, which basically means like he can put anything in the book that you say in, but he cannot indicate who told it. So the book is probably almost entirely anonymously sourced in some ways. But um a, a best practice would be to like find that, get a story from one person and then try to corroborate it with other people, even if you're doing it all in deep background and can't directly attribute it. So um, I imagine that that is a good chunk of the book is probably not really attributed to anyone, but um, 
hopefully, I assume, based on best practices and his experience as a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, um, at least deeply sourced, even if um, he can't tell you who those sources are. That is fascinating information. And thank, thank you for, for lending your journalistic background to this podcast. I, I really appreciate that knowledge. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, in terms of, of books that we have been reading, do you have any follow-up? I do. I do. Um, so last episode, one of the new books I mentioned was a book called The Class by Heather Wantisario, which was a book about um, a Connecticut science class that was based a uh, high school science teacher who did kind of a research lab for students. And then they were um, competitors on the science fair circuit. Uh, so it was a whole book about a year in this classroom and competitive science fairs. Uh, and I finished that while I was traveling last week. And it is just so delightful. Um, I did not think that I wanted like a book that would sort of take me back to high school, but it is just like so charming. And these kids are such engaging, wonderful nerds and their teacher is great. And, uh, it was just, it was really fun. So, um, I thought it wasn't a good, especially like in September when you're thinking about back to school and stuff. Um, I really liked it. So I really liked the class by Heather Wantisario, um, which I talked about in the last podcast and finally finished. Uh, do you remember any of your kind of grade school science fair projects? Did you have to do those? Um, I don't remember science fair, but we did have one that was an inventor's fair. And so we had to like come up with an invention, um, which I remember just like being impossible for me. Like I had such a hard time with this. And the thing that I came up with was a terrible idea. Um, it was like, uh, I'm even like embarrassed telling you this. (laughs) I'm all the more interested right now. Okay, so you know how people when they like go on bikes or run, they have backpacks that are full of water, you know, that you yeah. can wear. I somehow had the idea that like you should have one of those, but it should be on top of your helmet <laughs> instead of like a backpack. <laughs> um, it was is idiotic. It was such a bad idea. <laughs> but you know what? I mean, in, a lot of inventors have a lot of bad ideas before they hit on that exactly right thing. So maybe if you had oh, kept was, experimenting with it, there would have been a solution. I'm just saying. Yeah. No, these kids in this class are much better scientists than me. They they are like, it's amazing the stuff that they're doing. So that's, yeah. But it was, no, science. Oh, God. That is a... We're going to move on to our first sponsor because I don't want to talk about what a dumb idea that was anymore. Uh, Our first sponsor for this week is The Good Neighbor, The Life and Work of Fred Rogers by Maxwell King. And so we're sponsored by Oasis Audio, which is the publisher. Uh, And this book, the audiobook, is narrated by LeVar Burton, which is amazing. So uh, if you're riding the wave of Mr. Rogers' nostalgia with the rest of America, then don't miss out on The Good Neighbor. Uh, In this book, Maxwell King has written the first ever full-length biography of Mr. Rogers, tracing his personal, professional, and artistic life through the decades. And obviously, like, who is the best person to voice the story of a PBS icon? Uh, That would be LeVar Burton. So you may know LeVar Burton as the host of Reading Rainbow, but he was also mentored by Fred Rogers. Uh, And so between his knack for storytelling and the depth of the book, uh, The Good Neighbor is an exceptional listening experience. And I am, I I had, I'm including this one, it will be in this week's edition of um, the newsletter I do, True Story. Uh, But I did not realize the audio was narrated by LeVar Burton. And now I am going to go listen to that immediately because it sounds just 
so darn awesome. So this week's sponsor is The Good Neighbor, The Life and Work of Fred Rogers by Maxwell King, and we thank them very much for sponsoring this episode. All right. So then uh, after that, we're going to hop into our first uh, segment of This Week and Every Week, which is new books. And September is just a bananas month for new releases. I think I have a list of like 20 books coming out this month that on some level I am interested in. Um, So trying to pull it down to three for this week was just kind of very stressful for me. But Uh, The first book that I am going to talk about is called The Dinosaur Artist, Obsession, Betrayal, and the Quest for Earth's Ultimate Trophy by Paige Williams. Uh, And this is another of that, like, kind of trend maybe we're seeing of, like, nonviolent true crime books. Uh, And so this one, uh, a New York, Paige Williams is a New New Yorker staff writer, and she goes into the riveting and perilous world of fossil collectors, um, which, uh, yes, it sounds amazing. So uh, the story is basically a guy tries to take a dinosaur uh, skeleton from Mongolia and then sell it for like a million dollars in the United States. Um, And it turns out that people in Mongolia did not like having their dinosaur skeleton stolen. Uh, So it's the story of kind of how that happened and how the seller became obsessed with fossils and what the whole like world of fossil collecting is actually about and who buys them and what happens of that. So um, some of the stuff has compared this one to books like The Orchid Thief. So an idea um, of narrative journalism that gets kind of crime into it, but also natural history and our um, conflicts with science and commerce and trying to kind of figure out how we pay for stuff like that, but don't and all that kind of stuff. Um, And I just think the idea of like people selling dinosaur fossils sounds amazing. And I really want to read that book now. So (laughs) the book is The Dinosaur Artist by Paige Williams. Um, That sounds so good. And so, I mean, you know, I like old stuff and dinosaurs and uh, Mm -hmm. true crime. So And crime. Yeah. Man. Um, also, while you were mentioning like the the whole sort of um, world behind fossil hunting, et cetera, it reminded me of the 19th century bone wars, which was like, you know, these two um, paleontologists who were basically racing to get more fossils, like more dinosaur fossils in the 1800s, like, and they hated each other. And it's great. Anyway, <laughs> um, good pick, Kim. So because I was out last week, I just really quick wanted to throw in um, Rebecca Solnit, who wrote Men Explain Things to Me, which is this like amazing series of essays. And she's so smart and brilliant and amazing. Um, she has a new book out called Call Them by Their True Names, uh, published by, I believe, Haymarket mm-hmm. Press. So um, get yeah. that. But my actual pick for new releases, <laughs> I'm just, I just wanted to slide that one in. Sorry. I was, I was sad to be gone last time, um, is uh, Seeds of of Resistance, The Fight to Save Our Food Supply by Mark Shapiro. And that's out September 18th from Hot Books. So um, this is essentially this investigative journalist um, plunges into the struggle underway for control of seeds, which if you think about it, it's like, I never think about seeds, but they're pretty important, right? So, uh, and then Mm -hmm. the second I started reading this, I, st- I very much recommend it. It's really short and the cover is like very eye-catching. So look that up at the very least. But um, I got a little anxious because I was like, oh, no, 
I (laughs) I didn't realize how important seeds are. But it again, um, kind of like the sixth extinction reminds me that um, people are actually focused on this. And like there are people who are very aware of this issue. So pretty much the thing that he discovers is that um, about half of all of our seeds are owned um, by three globe-stretching, like, merged companies, which are Dow DuPont, Bayer Monsanto, and Syngenta Chem China. And the reason that they're owned is that they kind of bred these seeds to be um, this, like, patented creation. So they used chemicals, which then made the seeds themselves dependent on chemicals. And it's this, like, weird thing. So he talks about that. He talks about the Svalbard um, seed bank and how – they're, you know, trying. Oh, yeah. yeah. So they're like trying to keep, you know, like all of these seeds that are going into extinction so that we have a diversity. And he talks about the importance of diversity, especially in the wake of climate change. Anyway, it's fascinating. Um, so check it out. It's called Seeds of Resistance, The Fight to Save Our Food Supply by Mark Shapiro. That sounds super good. Yeah. Man, cool. Um. So my next pick is also kind of a science-y pick, a little history too, and it's called The Personality Brokers, The Strange History of Myers-Briggs and the Birth of Personality Testing by Merv Emra, uh, which was out September 11th from Doubleday. Uh, And so this is a book all about the history, as a subtitle says, the history of the Myers-Briggs personality test, um, which was developed in like the 1920s, 30s, 40s, 50s by um, a mother and her daughter. So the mother is Catherine Briggs and her daughter is Isabella Briggs-Myers. Um, and Catherine Briggs was this woman who was a homemaker, homemaker, but she also had these really grand ambitions to like bring science and reason and that kind of thing to the rearing of children. So she raised her daughter in these like very odd ways and like had very, she really recorded everything her kid did and like they just, they had a very odd relationship. And so, um, Catherine became really obsessed with Carl Jung or, um, Jungian psychology. And so she kind of incorporated that into this uh, personality test that she developed to kind of like test out her kid, but also like test out other neighborhood kids and like all that other kind of stuff. Um, And then her daughter kind of um, brought it into business and kind of uh, monetized this this test that they developed that doesn't really have a very strong scientific basis. so it was just, it's a very interesting um, take on personality testing, which I feel like we, especially Myers-Briggs, like is so common, in, especially like in businesses and stuff, people will take that test all the time. That's the one where you get the four letters. Um, oh, yeah. Because it tests your introversion versus extroversion, your sensing versus intuiting, your thinking versus feeling, or your judging versus perceiving, and puts you on a scale between each of those things. Um but yeah, so it's just about the, the these two women and their um, backgrounds and how they developed this test. And then it goes, uh, the part I haven't gotten to yet, I think goes into how it became just like such a ubiquitous marker of testing our personalities and how, what it, what it means about us. So um, yeah, I'm probably like half-ish way through this one and it's, it's interesting so far. Um, the writing's a little dry in parts, but I think I'm so interested in the topic that I don't mind too much. Um, but yeah, that book is called The Personality Brokers, The Strange History of Myers-Briggs and the Birth of Personality Testing by Merv Emra. 
Okay, I love personality tests because, you know, who doesn't um, mm-hmm. in terms of like, oh, I get to learn more about my my personality. Oh, well, there we go. Anyway, my girlfriend loves Myers-Briggs. I can never get into it because I feel like every time I do it, I get a different answer. So now I just don't trust it. But I know that some people are like, that's the hill that they will die on is Myers-Briggs. Yeah, it's a really interesting like that there's not a ton of like rigorous science behind it, but the the test has been tested a lot, if that makes any sense, right? Like there's not a, there's not a like underpinning to it, but like other than sort of their observations and some connections to Carl Jung, but um, yeah, they just like did it over and over again and adapted it over and over again that like it like has some level of rigor to it, even if it sort of comes from nowhere. It's, it's really interesting. There's a lot to it. Um, so yeah, Michelle might actually like this one, I think. Yeah. Well, and there's also a lot with, um, I feel like people in the 20s, uh, well, by by a lot, I mean William Moulton Marston, creator of Wonder Woman, also mm-hmm. invented a personality test, which is DISC. And I think he also was like, I'm going to watch my children a lot and record all of my observations, which mm-hmm. also Louisa May Alcott's dad did. Dads, why do you got to do this? Oh, I guess this was a mom here. <laughs> Sorry, parents. Parents, why are you doing this? Okay, um, my next pick is The Field of Blood, Violence in Congress and the Road to Civil War by Joanne Freeman. Um, That's out now from FSG Books. Um, Joanne Freeman is a Yale history professor and podcaster. She is on the podcast Backstory, which is like kind of a history-based podcast. So she excavates this little discussed aspect of American history. In um, It's like a pretty long book and it's pretty scholarly, but it also, um, you know, like clips along. It's pretty accessible. But she recovers this lost story or pretty lost i would say there's one famous story from it of physical violence on the floor of the u.s congress so she you know she's a yale professor so she has all of these sources and she shows that the capital was rife with conflict uh in the decades before the civil war and that legislative sessions were often punctuated by mortal threats canings and flip desks and this kind of thing and there was at least one duel that ended um in death the only thing i knew about from this was um the caning of charles sumner which, have you heard of that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, right? Like, people are like, oh, yeah, this dude, <laughs> like, just <laughs> came out on the floor of the Senate and caned another dude. So that's one aspect of it. But she's like, oh, no, it was like a systemic problem. And she talks about how um, basically this was a – it's it's a kind of a new understanding of, of American democracy and, and what – where we were right before the Civil War, like, which is obviously – in some ways kind of feels familiar, but also is like, oh my gosh, I can't imagine a congressman caning another congressman right now. Yeah. Um, even with everything going on, I cannot imagine that. So anyway, um, Joanne Freeman herself is super fun, by the way. There's a famous gif of her online. She was interviewed on Hamilton's America that was on PBS a little bit ago, and she called him an arrogant, irritating asshole. Um, <laughs> and But she was like very quickly after saying like, a lot of people at the time thought that. Like, she's not saying that he was, but like that what was that's what was gift. So she was like, oh, for better or for worse, that's kind of what I'm now known for. <laughs> but anyway, again, that's The Field of Blood, Violence in Congress, and The Road to Civil War by Joanne Freeman. Oh, that sounds great. Excellent pick. September, right? September, October. So many good picks. Crazy. Uh, so my next pick is uh, it's called The Art of Logic in an Illogical World by Eugenia Chang. Um, and she is a mathematician. And she's written, I think this is her third book that she's kind of popular book that has to do with math that she's written. Um, she wrote one about math and baking pie. Um, 
which I like didn't get around to reading, but it sounded great. Um, but so in this book, The Art of Logic in an Illogical World, um, she is looking to provide some guidance to people who are sort of drowning in the world of illogic uh, that we have right now. So, um, so part of what the book is about, though, is that like, despite the fact that she is a magician and like knows how to make logical arguments and knows the importance of doing that, like she herself still falls prey to emotion and lets emotion dictate some of her decisions, like fear of flying or like eating too much and all those other things. So in the book, she kind of goes into the how logic works and some of the limitations of using kind of a strictly logical view of the world. And then also looks at why uh, a logic or uh, emotion is something that is important to take consider and how we think it communicate with other people. So she looks at how logic and a logic or logic and emotion go together to help us navigate a very like difficult and confusing world um, that is full of uh, in the description, it says bigotry, mansplaining, and manipulative memes, uh, which I enjoy that phrase quite a bit. So, um, yeah, I just thought this sounded very interesting. Like, there's a lot in the world that is hard right now and hard to wrap your head around. So, um, a mathematician talking about how logic and our feelings matter when we think about the world and try to make the best decisions we can seems like a very comforting kind of a read right now. So, uh, the book is that The Art of Logic in an Illogical World by Eugenia Cheng. That sounds super affirming. And mm-hmm. I want to take this moment to do a uh, The Bachelor callback because you read that book about The Bachelor. And I want to say that this season in Bachelor in Paradise, the men have been <laughs> gaslight. This is on topic. The men have been gaslighting the women so hard and being like, you're t- you're not making any sense. You're like, they've been totally doing that. And the women have been more than ever being like, you're not making sense. This is what you said. So I feel like that whole like logic and a logic thing coming together in a beautiful way. Uh, I'm so proud of all the ladies this season. Anyway. That is an amazing callback. Way to go. (laughs) Thank you. Um, My last new pick is She Called Me Woman, Nigeria's Queer Women Speak, um, which is edited by Azinar Mohammed Chitra Nagarajan and Rafiat Aliu. This is out September 12th from Cassava Republic Press. So this is 25 narratives that sort of come together to paint this vivid portrait of what it means to be a queer Nigerian woman. What I did not know, because I looked it up on Wikipedia, um, bastion of knowledge, uh, is that Nigeria, the population of Nigeria is over half of the population of the United States, right? And that's just, wow. yeah, it's like, I, uh, I'm going to say 170 million. That could be so wrong, but I think that's right. Um, it was really nuts. And so because she was talking about how she like one of the editors was saying that she thinks at least a million people are you know queer in Nigeria. And I was like, that's a lot. And I looked up their population and was like, oh, my gosh, that's huge. So um, anti-gay laws are uh, extremely harsh in Nigeria. Um, ma- marriage equality is definitely not a thing. It was voted down very, very um I'm going to say strenuously. So what this collection is extremely brave. All of them are, um, all the authors just have their initials on it because they could get into trouble. And when I was reading it, honestly, it was a little bit hard as a queer person myself because you're kind of taken back to, um, I didn't, I never lived when we had uh, punishments like this in America, but you're taken back to this time where the vast majority of the country thinks that you should not have 
basic civil rights. And um, to think that there are still people dealing with this is very hard, but also something that I think as members of the world, we need to be aware of and hear their stories and see how they are thriving in some cases or just surviving. Um, so I, I think it's a stunning book. Again, it's called She Called Me Woman, Nigeria's Queer Women Speak, uh, edited by these three wonderful Nigerian women, Azinar Mohammed, Chitra Nagarajan, and Rafiat Aliu. That sounds, oh man, great pick. That is a good under the radar, I think. Excellent choice. So thank you for recommending that one. I just, I feel like, yeah, maybe, well, it's because I scan Edelweiss all day, the the, <laughs> the book is, but yeah, you're right. I don't think it's going to get highlighted a lot. And I think people should read it. Um, not to backpat myself too much. Okay. Our next sponsor is The Real Lolita by Sarah Weinman, published by Echo. Very few readers of Vladimir Nabokov's Lolita know that the subject of the novel was inspired by a real-life case, the 1948 abduction of 11-year-old Sally Horner. Weaving together suspenseful crime narrative, cultural and social history, and literary investigation, the real Lolita tells Sally Horner's full story for the very first time. Drawing upon extensive investigations, legal documents, public records, and interviews with remaining relatives, Sarah Weinman uncovers how much Nabokov knew of the Sally Horner case and the efforts he took to disguise that knowledge during the process of writing and publishing Lolita. So this year is the 60th anniversary of the American publication of Lolita. It's This is both kind of like a true crime book and a publishing mystery book. So, you know, it's kind of like the story of Sally Horner along with the book Lolita's Development. Um, I would call it, uh, I actually talked about this book on um, Get Booked the other day. And I just as like a recommendation, because I read it um, very quickly for me, I usually get distracted easily. And this was a, a real page turner, but I call it a palate cleanser after Lolita, because this is very much, you know, Lolita is by Nabokov and it's from Humbert Humbert, um, his perspective. And this is all about um, the the girl, this is all about Sally Horner and her story, which is a sad story, but um, a very fascinating and um, I think well worth reading one. So again, that book is The Real Lolita by Sarah Weinman, and we thank Echo for sponsoring. Excellent. That was one of the editor's buzz books for this year, wasn't it? I think so. Yeah. Cool. I'm glad it's good. That's awesome. Um, yeah, so now we're going to switch gears and shift into our weekly theme, which is a topical type of discussion of books somehow. Uh, and this week we don't have a specific date or event these are tied to. Um, we thought it would be interesting since it's uh, kind of turning to fall. The pumpkin spice latte is out, so that must officially mean that the fall is here. Um, we talk about cozy nonfiction, um, which, Alice, I'm curious to hear what, when you think of cozy nonfiction, where does your brain go? Oh, put on the spot. Um, I think I think of like books that I'm reading under a blanket that aren't really, well, I was going to say not really freaking me out too much, but more that it's just kind of like easy, a different sort of beach read spin. You know what I mean? Like we talked about what a beach read was for the summer and I feel like fall books are more sort of like, I'm going to delve into this and maybe just like feel happy as opposed to just feel kind of numbed out like on the beach. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's when I would, I don't know. What do you, what do I you? Yeah, I was, at first I thought like happy, but then I, I was going to say, I don't read a lot of happy nonfiction, but um, when I think cozy, I think stuff that like you kind of want to curl up with, you want to spend a lot of time with, and that like doesn't make you happy, but sort of makes you feel like content and warm fuzzies, which are 
different, I think, than than like just straight happiness. Um, I agree. Yeah. So something that's just sort of like you feel good and cuddled up in. Um, so yeah, we're trying to recommend some cozy nonfiction. Um, and I guess I will go first. Um, and so my first one is called House of Stone by Anthony Shadid. Uh, and this book came out, I think, in, gosh, it's probably like four or five years ago now. I didn't write the date down. But um, Anthony Shadid was a foreign correspondent. Uh, he was a journalist. And he uh, the book opens in March 2011 when he was captured, cuffed, and beaten in Libya while covering an uprising against the dictatorship of Muammar Gaddafi. Uh, so the book starts with that uh, captivity experience and then continues on. Um, after he was eventually released, he decides to um, take some time to himself to kind of rebuild um, physically and emotionally. And he goes to his great-grandfather's estate in Lebanon to both rebuild the house and rebuild himself. Um, and so then the book offers these two parallel stories about the rebuilding and re um, yeah the rebuilding of the house along with the story of Shadid's family's migration from Lebanon to the United States so kind of their home in Lebanon getting rebuilt and then the, kind of how they built a home in the United States after they emigrated um, and part of why I came to mind when I was thinking about cozy nonfiction is that it is a very very slow deliberate moving book um, but it's done purposefully like he wants you to kind of settle back and sit and think and be in this place and and in this book and the writing is just beautiful it is so stunning um and there's also this real sense of melancholy in the book because um Shadid actually he died before the book was published he wrote it um and then he was reporting um, in the Middle East and he um, had an asthma attack and he died. Um, and so there's this, you know that that has happened, even though it's not part of the book, obviously at all. Um, but you just feel this real melancholy, like hearing about this experience that he's having and hearing him talk so lovingly about his family and his home um, and knowing that he's not there to enjoy it anymore. Um, and so it's just this very, very beautiful, melancholy kind of home and history and family book um, that I just... It feels like when you sort of want to like sink in and spend time with, even if it's not like super cheerful, um, it's it's just really lovely. And I really, I really loved it. So um, the book is House of Stone by Anthony Shadid. Yeah, I saw you picked that and I was like, oh, we went different ways with our definition yeah. of cozy fall reads. But I'm really glad because, you know, everyone has kind of their own idea. So this is, is giving us a fuller gamut. Um, my pick is uh my first pick is the little book of Huga, danish secrets <laughs> sorry danish secrets to happy living by mike viking which uh you would think you know how mike viking is spelled but it is in fact m-e-i-k-w-i-k-i-n-g um so essentially the purpose of this book is why are danes the happiest people in the world according to some studies the answer uh, says Mike Viking, CEO of the Happiness Research Institute in Copenhagen, is Huga, which uh, you probably have heard about. It's been pretty touted in recent times. Um, so this essentially means this this word, this uh, Danish word, is a sense of comfort, togetherness, and well-being, which, Kim, that kind of sounds like what you were saying. You felt a cozy fall read is. So I feel mm -hmm. like this it really just hits the nail on the head. So it does. Um, he says that Huga is about an atmosphere and an experience and it's about being with the people we love and the feeling of home and like we're safe. And so 
one of the uh, is this is a cornerstone of Danish life. And so the book sort of offers advice and ideas on how to incorporate this sort of sensation you get when you're like cuddled up on a sofa, like with like nice socks on and (laughs) stuff, like how to put that into your daily life, which I'm like all for. So some of their suggestions are to um, turn off your phone, turn down the lights, put on candles, which I know sounds very romantic, but also just... (laughs) Just makes you feel nice. Um, talking about spending time with like your people, so you know, like your family, your friends, whoever your people are. And then uh, it also says to give yourself a break from the demands of healthy living. So like cake is huga, which <laughs> I cannot say that word without the. Okay, so I don't like Frozen the movie, but Frozen the Broadway musical is amazing, and it has a song that was written for the musical called Huga, and it makes me laugh every single time. So I kind of chose this book because of that song, because every time I think of it, I just laugh. Anyway, um, so that book again is The Little Book of Huga by Mike Viking. Man, that is a good pick. We could do an entire segment just about like books about very particular words and other languages and trying to understand them, um, right? Because there's a bunch of books like that right now, I think. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, a ton. That'd be that's a good one. Um, so my second book is actually like more cheerful and warm and cozy <laughs> than the last one. Um, <laughs> even though I started it out in a sad way. Whatever. I stand by that pick. It is a great book and it will make you want to cuddle up in your home and be with your family. But the book that I am also suggesting that is more cheerful uh, is called Ex Libris, Confessions of a Common Reader by Anne Fadiman. Um, and this is just a very tiny collection of essays all about loving books and having a bookish life. Um, And Anne Fadiman is one of my favorite writers. I think she is just beautiful and so, um, just so great. And this book just has these really delightful essays. The very first one is called Marrying Libraries. And it's just an essay about what happens when you and your person move in together or get married. And like, what do you do with your libraries? Like, do you combine them? Do you keep them separate? Like, what is that even about? And it's great. Um, there's one about the catalogical imperative. There's one about, uh, it's called um, Eternal Ink. Uh, one called Score Not the Sonnet. They're just these very like delightful little essays about being a reader. And I, I think they are so charming. And like reading books about books is always a thing that makes me feel cozy. Um, and the copy I have is this little like green paperback. And it came caught with two other collections that I actually haven't gotten around to reading yet, which is ridiculous because they're going to be great. Um, And one is called At Large and At Small, Familiar Essays. And then the other one is called Rereadings, 17 Writers Revisit Books They Love. Um, So yeah, that one's just 17 essays about rereading books. Um, And yeah, those all came together in like a little box set with these three beautiful little paperbacks. And I just find... Uh, Ex Libris, just one of my very favorite cozy essay books about books. So yeah, Ex Libris by Anne Fadiman. I have had that book on my shelf for years after a book blogger recommended it and I still haven't read it, but I keep, like every time I see it, I'm like, oh, that looks so good. I should really read it. So thank you for yeah. this little nudge. Um, also, when you said marrying libraries, I definitely started thinking about libraries that I would want to marry. Um <laughs> So I was I was kind of glad you clarified that, but also I was like, gosh, what library, <laughs> library would I want to marry? Um, questions for another episode. So 
My next pick is Travels with Charlie in Search of America by John Steinbeck, which seems to be housed in literature, but it's nonfiction. So I'm a little confused about that. But basically at age 58, uh, acclaimed author, acclaimed American author, John Steinbeck, decided to go in search of, um, the book copy says the real America, which as Liz Lemon on 30 Rock says, it's all the real America. You know what I mean? Like we're here, it's America, this Mm -hmm. is the real America. But nevertheless, John Steinbeck and his dog got in a car, decided to drive around, dine with truckers, meet bears at Yellowstone, and hang out in San Francisco. And he thinks about uh, the American character, racial hostility, the particular form of American loneliness that he finds almost everywhere, and the unexpected kindness of strangers. So I thought it would be kind of nice for like a cozy fall read to sort of read like a road trip book that's also sort of reflective as you stare out into the <laughs> ever darkening evenings um <laughs> but uh yeah so and i haven't i haven't read this in its entirety yet what a surprise but um i really like steinbeck and i like dogs so i figured this would be great um travels with charlie in search of america by john steinbeck i do like the idea of like a cozy road trip novel or uh <gasps> Non-fiction. Noir, not non-fiction. Novel. We're talking about God. God, Kim, you're on a non-fiction podcast. What are you even talking about, you idiot? Come on. <laughs> oh, yeah, that does sound cozy. Uh, yeah, I I gotta say, like when I was trying to think of cozy nonfiction, I struggled a little bit just because, like, I don't know. I read happy things, but I don't know if they're like nonfiction. I if I, yeah, it was just an interesting, like, kind of headspace to try and get in but you have got some excellent picks so i'm well honestly i just i wanted to pick the sound of a wild snail eating again because it's the coziest (laughs) and i was like you've talked about that twice you can't talk about it again but um so i just looked for stuff in a semi-similar vein yeah but anyway nature books are often very cozy i think like they just feel yeah nature yay all right (laughs) (laughs) anyway All right, so now we're going to move on to uh, segment three, which is our non-topical segment. Uh, And this one uh, was one of my ideas because and we're going to talk about books with great subtitles uh, because I think the nonfiction subtitle is like, it's my favorite thing. I love when nonfiction books have amazing subtitles because it just like makes you want to pick it up and read it. And like, you just never have that in fiction. Like fiction, the best you get for subtitles is like a novel, um, which is just, is boring. But nonfiction, man, you get these amazing subtitles. And I just, it's my favorite thing. Uh, So we're going to talk about some books that have really good subtitles and why we think they're great. Um, Yeah. So I guess I'll go first again. Um, My first book is called Moby Duck, the true story of 28,800 bath toys lost at sea and of the beachcombers, oceanographers, environmentalists, and fools, including the author who went in search of them by Donovan Hahn. Oh God! Isn't that amazing? That's re- that's really good. Isn't that yeah. good? That that might be a winner, right? I don't think that's my favorite one of all time. Um, and so this uh, the book is actually also very funny and very charming too. Uh, and it, so the writer just hears about the loss of thousands of bath toys at sea, and so he decides that he's going to try and like figure out what happened to them. So he interviews oceanographers. He talks to beachcombers who like find, you know, stuff on the beach. Um, He looks at, he rereads books about science and geography and tries to like understand 
ocean currents and how this um, bunch of bath toys that were, I think, on a ship, the, I don't remember exactly, but they, they fell off a ship, I'm pretty sure, how they fell, like, what happened to them, like, how they got to the shore of places and where else they could have ended up. And so it's just, like, this book that follows these uh, floating ducks and tries to figure out what happened to them. Um, and the cover is delightful. It's, like, an ocean scene with, like, giant uh, inflatable ducks, like, floating on it. And, yeah, it's this amazing subtitle about oceanographers and beachcombers and environmentalists. And, um, yeah, I really <laughs> – I read – I, I I remember when that book came out because the subtitle happened and I was like, oh my God, I will read that. And I did. And the book was just as good as the subtitle, which thank goodness, because that would have been very disappointing uh, to have such a good subtitle and then like not be a good book, but it's great. So uh, the full full title again is Moby Duck, the true story of 28,800 bath toys lost at sea and of the beachcombers, oceanographers, environmentalists, and fools, including the author who went in search of them by Donovan Hahn. Yeah, that's a, that's a good subtitle. Um, my, my first subtitle pick, every time I see this title, I'm like, gosh, you did a great job. Um, <laughs> it, it is Heaven's Ditch, God, Gold, and Murder on the Erie Canal by Jack Kelly, which I'm That's just, good. It's real good. And a lot of like short words, but used very effectively. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically, this is about the opening of the Erie Canal. So like in 1825 through 1844. And um, Jack Kelly covers sort of the spiritual and political upheavals happening along this, quote, psychic highway, which I'm already like, why is it called a psychic highway? You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. there's so much going on. They're talking about uh, this man who envisioned the apocalypse. Joseph Smith, uh, the founder of Mormonism, lived along this. Um, and then there was also the first crime of the century, a treasure hunt, um, acts of violence, a visionary crossdresser, pan- a panoply of fanatics, mystics, and hoaxers. And this all has to do with the Erie Canal. So again, uh, heaven's ditch God, Gold, and Murder on the Erie Canal by Jack Kelly. Pick it up. Oh, and the cover's really good, just as a PS. That sounds so great. So, side note, I think that the two words that, like, make any subtitle, like, 10% or, no, probably more like 40% better are murder or madness. Uh, If you can put either one of those things legitimately in the subtitle of your book, I feel like my interest in it, that's probably, yeah, my interest in it goes up, like, 40 to 50 percent just oh definitely it's a great point yeah so uh speaking of murder and madness um my (laughs) second because i just love it so much um god people are gonna think we're insane we're like gonna go on a crime spree or something whatever uh the book is uh the professor and the madman a tale of murder insanity and the making of the oxford english dictionary by simon winchester uh and this book is great and it is exactly what the subtitle tells you it is it is a history of the oxford english dictionary so it starts uh, out in 1857 when the first uh, edition of the oed was starting to be compiled um and it talks about why it was such a like crazy ambitious crazy ambitious project um so they talk about collecting definitions about the committee that's overseeing it uh led by um, a guy named professor james murray and then um 
they discover that one person submitted more than 10,000 possible words and definitions for the OED. Um, And so then um, they wanted the committee that was making the OED wanted to like recognize him for doing all this, like essentially like free volunteer work coming up with definitions for them. Uh, And so when they tried to go reach out to him, they discovered that uh, the man, W.C. My- Dr. W.C. Minor, was a Civil War veteran, but also an inmate at an asylum for the criminally insane. Uh, and so then they have to figure out what to do about that. Uh, so, the, yeah, the book is about the putting together of the OED, which is like if you're a book word nerd at all, it is fascinating to see the story behind that. And then it also has murder and madness and genius and all of those other exciting things that make really good nonfiction really good. So, um, yeah, I read this book quite a while ago. Um, and I just, it's one of my favorites. It's just such a good like book about a book and, um, the story is great. And Simon Winchester is a great writer and he's done some really engaging, well-written narratives, um, that I often recommend to people cause he's, he's, he's quite excellent. So, uh, yeah, that book is The Professor and the Madman, A Tale of Murder, Insanity, and the Making of the Oxford English Dictionary by Simon Winchester. I feel like that book is like almost a modern classic at this point. Um, yeah, I think you're right. I, I know that it came out, Harper Perennial does those really pretty and matching olive editions, and they I don't think they do nonfiction very often, but they did one for that. Um, was, oh, really? Yeah. That's cool. I was kind of thinking of picking it up because I haven't read it yet, but it I do see it like everywhere, and I was like, gosh, that it does have such a good subtitle. Um, yeah. Amazon's got it listed as the paperback came out in 2005, but I feel like it was earlier than that, and maybe this is a reprint. Um, I'm not sure. Although 2005 was 13 years ago. Oh, my God. You're right. <laughs> oh, man. Sorry. My, <laughs> sorry. My mind was just blown. Wow. <laughs> Okay. My last subtitle pick is Working Stiff, Two Years, 262 Bodies, and the Making of a Medical Examiner by Judy Melanick. Kim, did you ever pick this book? Or was it a different? No, but I no, but I absolutely this is like exactly in my wheelhouse for sure. Yeah, that must be what I was thinking. Cause I was like, either Kim did another like pathologist <laughs> book, or this is just I was like, this is something Kim would read. Um yeah. so basically two months before the September eleventh terrorist attack, which uh we're recording on September twelfth. So um Yep. Dr. Judy Melanick began her training as a New York City forensic pathologist, which uh, I cannot imagine. So Working Stiff, her book, chronicles her two years of training. Uh, It takes readers behind the police tape of some of the most harrowing deaths in New York City, including a firsthand account of the events of September 11th, which there's a lot of other stuff in the book, but I mentioned that because if you're kind of don't want to read that, just be aware that that's in there. Um, The subsequent anthrax bioterrorism attack and the disastrous crash of American Airlines Flight 587. Um, She also kind of, though, Working Stiff gives this sort of glimpse into the daily life of being a medical examiner, which uh, I don't want to do, but I would like to read about. So... Mm talks about the uh, challenges of shuttling between sort of like, you know, you're you're with a bunch of, um, uh, well, it's I believe it says shuttling between the domains of the living and the dead, which is a very politic, nice way of putting that. Um, <laughs> I was going to say you were with a lot of dead people, but um, 
the domains of the living and the dead is lovely. Uh, so, and then basically talking about, you know, murders, accidents, and um, suicides that land on her table, and sort of uh, also talking about the glamorized depictions of autopsy work on television and how morgues really work, which I was like, they're glamorized on tele. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, I feel like they tend to be pretty gritty, but maybe that's not the case. Anyway, if you would like more information on uh, how the life of a medical examiner is, then Working Stiff, Two Years, 262 Bodies, and the Making of a Medical Examiner by Judy Melanick. Yeah, I do actually, I do think that uh, autopsy stuff on TV is pretty sanitized. Um, I watch a lot of uh, procedural crime television. uh, And usually when they go down to the morgue, like you'll get like one like kind of shot of like bodies everywhere, but then like the person that they're actually investigating their murder or whatever, like they're always covered up and um, the people always look like very well dressed and like they're often, you know, fancy and made up and everything. And it doesn't look that gruesome I would- oh i think i'm thinking of like there's an x-files episode because you know scully is a medical doctor mm-hmm. and so she does a lot of autopsies and there's literally a part where she like is holding a bunch of intestines and is like weighing them <laughs> it's in the season five episode bad blood it's the best episode of the whole series but um that part is just like oh my gosh so when she said like you know it's glamorized i was like i don't know but i think i'm only thinking of that scene on x-files mm, yeah yeah, I was thinking of uh, Rizzoli and Isles, which was on TNT that I watched a lot of a while back. Oh, uh, gosh, I love Rizzoli and Isles. Oh, my God, me <laughs> what too. A great show. It's so charming. <laughs> oh, my God. But, yeah, like she's always in like heels and stuff and like in the morgue. So, like, anyway, that was a that was a digression. But, yeah, Rizzoli and Isles, <laughs> it's amazing. I love that show. <sighs> oh, yeah. Wow. All right. So anyway, books with uh, nonfiction has great subtitles. Those are just a few. Uh, if your book has murder or madness in the subtitle, I will be much more likely to be interested in it because that's my thing, apparently. Uh, yeah. All right. So I guess we will close out this week's episode as we usually do by talking about the books that we are reading presently. So reading right now, as it were. So Alice, why don't you go first this time? Oh my gosh, I'm so excited about my current read. So I am reading 99 Glimpses of Princess Margaret by Craig Brown. It's split up into like 99 little mini episodes. And some of them are just like a couple pages long and some are a little longer. But it's basically just all these little vignettes and like, again, well, glimpses like in the title of Queen Elizabeth II's sister, Princess Margaret's life. Um, She seems to have been kind of terrible, but also one of those like very occasionally witty, like got some good quips in kind of people. Her life is therefore fascinating. The author is, I think, maybe a genius. I'm just going to put that out there. Like with the way that he writes about stuff, I'm just always like, oh gosh, you're so creative and clever and this is great. He writes like alternate universe fan fiction about Princess Margaret. Like some of the chapters are like, well, Pablo Picasso was in love with her. And so here is a chapter acting like, like here's what maybe would have happened if she had married Pablo Picasso. And I'm just like, this is everything I never knew I wanted. I love it so much. Anyway, again, uh, 99 Glimpses of Princess Margaret by Craig Brown. Yes, I started that one. It is delightful. It is just, it is frothy in like the best possible way uh i think yeah Yeah. um my book is um not that uh (laughs) (laughs) 
Uh, right now, I am re- actually rereading a book called Knocking on Heaven's Door, The Path to a Better Way of Death by Katie Butler. Uh, and this is a book by a journalist who is writing about her experiences with her parents' um, aging and death. And so um, the first part is about her father, who um, in his 80s has a or at 79, he has a crippling stroke. Uh, and so then Katie and her mother become um, caretakers for him after his stroke. Um, and he needs to go to have a hernia surgery, but his surgeon won't do this very basic hernia surgery without him getting a pacemaker. So they kind of very quickly, without thinking about it, say, that's fine, give him the pacemaker. And then as he continues to decline, the pacemaker like continues to keep him alive even after like the rest of his mind and his body really like shouldn't be anymore. Uh, and so the book is a lot about what are, what are the consequences of medical overtreatment? Like what does the medical system, um, does the medical system incentivize overtreatment or does it incentivize, uh, the answer is yes, it incentivizes overtreatment. Um, but it looks at that versus like, um, slowing down and like giving more time with family physicians to really talk about how we want our end of life to be and how we want our, yeah, what we want that experience to be like. So she writes about her father's death and her family's um, quest to actually have his pacemaker turned off because uh, he's alive well beyond the time when quality of life is good for him. And then about her mother's death, which is very different. Um, And it's, I'm rereading it for a project and it's just, it's a very, it's a very good book and it makes you think a lot about your family and um, kind of what's going on and how you, how you would want them to their lives to, to end if, if you have a choice. Um, and it's, uh, it's a lot, it's a, it's a hard read in parts, but I, I really, I really liked it. It's, it's a good one to, to pick up. So I, uh, yeah, the title is knocking on heaven's door, the path to a better way of death by Katie Butler. Did you, um, have you been listening to the podcast, Dr. Death? No, I haven't. It mm-hmm. just reminded me. It's it's similarly. I'm not going to go into it, but it's it's very similarly kind of about you know the the medical world and um, what we don't know and how things can be better and that kind of thing. But also like true crime, so it's great. Oh, interesting. That is right in my wheelhouse too. All right. Uh, so before we wrap up, just one final uh, piece of information. Uh, we wanted to let you know that we are uh, Book Riot, not me and Alice, Book Riot is giving away a six-month subscription to Owl Crate Jr., uh, which is a bookish subscription box for readers ages 8 to 12 or for readers who are young at heart. Um, every box features a new release middle grade novel, which uh, exclusives from the author, and then three to five usable goodies that fit the month's month's theme and encourage creativity and learning. Uh, so if you are interested in entering that giveaway, you can go to bookriot.com slash giveaway. So it's bookriot.com slash giveaway, and junior is just J-R, not spelled out. Uh, yeah. And so with that, um, that is the end of our episode. We are, we are done. I feel like uh, we it was a successful one. Did a great so. job. Lots of cozy fall reads and great subtitles. Um, So if you are interested in any questions, comments, et cetera, want to reach out to us, you can find us on social media uh, on Twitter. I am at It's Alice Time and Kim is at Kim the Dork. Yes. And if you are so inclined, you can uh, go and rate and review the the show on iTunes so that people can find the podcast more easily. Uh, And then you can also subscribe so that you will get new episodes the very minute that they come out. And so with that, I'm Kim Ukra. 
And I'm Alice Burton. And thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Four Wheel Podcast.